0: I've uh, I've been tasked to introduce you to the New Testament, as well as cover the first four chapters of Matthew. Uh, you'll be happy to know I've got it down to two hours and ten minutes, so we should be just fine. We'll have okay, that's that's stretching it a little bit, but as soon as I get started, you'll find out. I'll go into second gear on my speech, and we'll get there. But what a great day it is. I tell you, I just get excited getting to look at God's word and talk about it from time to time. And uh, Spent the last nine months out at First Baptist, or Union you know, Current Baptist Church. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, I developed another bad habit there. In addition to walking across, I now go all the way down the aisles. And uh, so if you're the kind that likes to doze off while I'm preaching, I may end up in your face. But that's okay. That's just how I am. Now, some of you are going to say, I'm not really sure I want to come to this church. Pastor Bill will be back. Don't worry. <laughs> he's on a plane on his way to Philadelphia for a North American Mission Board meeting right now. And uh, since he felt he probably couldn't preach from there, uh, he asked me to do uh, this Sunday. And then uh, and Pastor Jeff is going to preach next Sunday. I'm going to warm you up and he's going to take you on. Uh, anyway, I hope you've got your Bibles open to the first book of Matthew by now. Uh, first book of Matthew, the first chapter in Matthew. I think there's only one book of Matthew, at least last time I looked. If you're not sure where that's at, you know, just look in the blessed book of the index. It'll tell you what page it's on. You can go there. And uh, uh, mine, it's a uh, page 1121. I don't know if that helps you or not. Yeah, I, I, what I find really interesting about the Gospel of, of Matthew is, 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 it's not necessarily the very first book in all Greek manuscripts. Uh, which which is rather interesting. But because of its position, because of its position as the first uh, uh, book in the New Testament, it's really the most widely read book in the New Testament. Because a lot of people get on a great good intention of, I'm going to read through the Bible. And they get through one book. But at least they get through Matthew. Because if they start in Genesis, we all know where that ends. Genesis 1 you know but, but but so it's it's the most widely read and, and so being that it's also exerted literally the most influence on the world uh, as a book in the new testament now I, I find it interesting you know because matthew was actually uh, written after mark and and it's not nearly as beautiful as luke or, or as profound as john but because of its position it, it's had a great impact But it is a wonderful book, and it gives us, in my opinion, a very just and adequate picture of the life and teachings of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It's generally agreed by most scholars that Matthew's gospel was written somewhere between 60 and 70 A.D. Uh, Some scholars say it was written in 63 A.D. I wasn't there. I can't confirm it. But it's A.D. 60, A.D. 70 works for me. You know, it was written also in his native tongue. Uh, And that, of course, is the language of Palestine. And that language was not pure Hebrew. It was actually a mixture of Hebrew, Chaldaic, and Syriac, or commonly known as Syro-Chaldaic, and we call it Aramean. Now, when you get that all figured out, write it down for me and send it in. We'll be good. Anyway, I want to start with the very first verse in Matthew chapter 1 because we're only covering four chapters, we should be able to get through that, right? All right, read with me, I'm reading out of the, the NIV for this particular session, and I'm not really sure why I picked that, but God said to, so here we are. Verse 1, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's a very key fact, and keep that in your mind for just a little bit. And then we're going to go all the way through the genealogy. Okay, go to verse 16. That was quick, huh? You liked it. I can tell. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to Christ. Now, Matthew's opening line clearly intends to link the story of Jesus to the broader story of the descendants of Abraham, which is why I call this section the genealogy of Jesus genealogy of Jesus. You see, anyone, anyone that would seek to lay claim to being the Messiah would first of all have to prove that he was a descendant of Abraham because God made a special promise to Abraham in Genesis 22:18, 18. And later on, he promised to David uh, that he would build David's house and that seed would sit upon the throne forever. And that's in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. And from that promise, David understood that God was promising that the Messiah would come through his genealogy. Here's the deal. To claim to be the Messiah... You had to be able to be a descendant, a son of Abraham and David. Abraham and David. Now, those of you that are deep theologians looked right at verse 16 and you said, well, this is the genealogy of Joseph. I don't know how many of you were looking that close. This is the genealogy of Joseph. And so if Jesus was... Virgin-born or virgin-conceived, then why would it be necessary to trace Joseph's genealogy? Because of verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. Do you notice it doesn't say that Joseph was the father of Jesus, but that he was the husband of Mary, whom was born Jesus, who is called The Christ. You see, Matthew traces, excuse me, chases the genealogy line of Jesus back to David through Solomon. Now, when you get to Luke, and that'll happen down the road in just a little bit, you're going to notice that that genealogical listing is actually not of Joseph, but of Mary. And it traces the genealogy back to David and to Abraham through the son of David called Nathan. They both get there, just slightly different curvatures. So the, the, the mother of Jesus is a descendant of Abraham and David. And the gentleman that was chosen to raise him is a son of Abraham and David. God's got a good plan all the time. A really good plan. Gosh, you guys are quiet. Man, obviously you've forgotten me. All right, let, let, let's go on. Uh, the second section is what I call telling Joseph. That's in, in verse 18. I call it telling Joseph. Read with me. Verse 18, it says, This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly let's stop right there for just a second Uh, because i think it's very necessary right here that we understand that in the the culture in that period of time there were three different relationships that a couple would go through there was first of all the engagement now i want to tell you uh uh, the engagement could have happened as young as one or two years old because a parents picked out who your spouse was going to be now some of you are going that might have helped i don't know Folks over here will get it later. <laughs> that might have helped. Because could you imagine your kindergartner going to school and, and they say, well, uh, how are you, uh, little Johnny? And they say, oh, just fine. And Well, who's just walking with you? Oh, oh, that's the girl I'm engaged to. You know, <laughs> I'm sorry. My 11-year-old grandson went to a party, and I'm still kind of struggling with that one. I thought, golly, in kindergarten, would I have had the wherewithal to know anything like that? I'm 56, and I'm still not sure. You know what I'm saying? It's a little difficult. But I just can't picture it. But anyway, so there's the engagement. And then there's the espousal period. And that, of course, happens once they reach a, a, of age. It's in an espousal period. It's usually in their very young teenage age uh, uh, that they're in the espousal period. And then, of course, there's the betrothal. And that's the actual marriage that goes on. And, and so it was during the period that Joseph and Mary were espoused and committed to each other, no physical relationship, they had a problem. Mary was pregnant. Now under Jewish law that constituted infidelity or adultery. And because they were in the period of espousal under Jewish law she could have been stoned to death. Stoned to death. So so here's the problem that Joseph is facing with Mary. I mean, I, I believe that Mary was an extremely beautiful person, maybe not necessarily physically, but especially uh, uh, spiritually. I mean, she was a, a young girl, pure and, and righteous, that God chose her above all others to be the vessel through which his son was going to be born. So I know she was beautiful. God gave her such a high honor that from that time on, all would call her Blessed. So here, Joseph's in turmoil. He's in turmoil. He loved her. He did not know what to do about it. I mean, he really could not, in his mind, stand the thought of publicly disgracing her by saying, I'm not responsible for this child. And that would have been the thing to do. And to see her stoned by the angry mobs, he couldn't bring himself to do that. And, and so he's thinking, well, maybe, maybe I can just ship her off someplace uh, to put her away privately where she can be spared. While he was going over these things in his heart and his mind, notice what it says in verse 20 and following. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus. Because he will save his people from their sins. Now all this was done. In order that it might be fulfilled. Which was spoken by the, of the Lord by a prophet. Notice. In Matthew's writing, and this is what I find fascinating about a lot of the New Testament, especially Matthew, though, that he accepts the words of the prophets as actually being inspired of God. He doesn't question it. Okay, here it comes. I believe in the church today we tend to spend more time questioning God's word instead of following it. Matthew... In his writings said the prophet said this, I believe it's true and that's how it is. I want to tell you, here's my opinion. if God said it, it doesn't matter whether you or I believe it, that settles it. That's me. Maybe you're not. We can talk later. I believe in coercion. Maybe I. Right. Matthew believed that everything was inspired of God from the prophets. You know, one thing the New Testament recognizes all, all the way through it is the divine inspiration of Scripture. I mean, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, it's all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's all inspired. Okay, turn with me to Matthew, Matthew chapter 2. Just obliterated one. We'll try for two. Matthew 2. <laughs> I call this the infancy of Jesus. The infancy of Jesus. You know, chapter 2 naturally divides itself into two sections. The first 12 verses are section 1 and 13 through 23 is section 2. The first section, I call it the Gentile pilgrimage. Uh, uh, listen to verse 1. It says, now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Herod. They Now this is Herod the Great. This is Herod the Great. He was a guy about four feet tall, I know, and had one massive ego problem. He had a massive ego problem. So much so that everything he did was big. Everything he did was big. I mean, he he built great fortresses out of great rocks. My uh, my brother lives in Arkansas. Made a trip to uh, the Holy Land. Uh, A few years back. And knowing that I hadn't been there, he was gracious enough to be sure I saw enough pictures. Of course, I'd get him back. You know, He's a huge fan of In-N-Out Burger, and they don't have those in Arkansas. So every time I go, I take a picture of the cup and send it to him. I don't know. He went to Israel. I go to In-N-Out. Something's wrong with this picture. Anyway, anyway, anyway. Anyway. (laughs) <laughs> anyway where was i going with that steve catch me up here buddy all right there we go all right yeah my my brother my brother stood next to this rock and had his picture taken and and uh, i'm not even sure i still have it anymore i just remembered but it, but it was a um a rock that's along the western wall in, in jerusalem that that Harold built as a retaining wall to build up the Temple Mount to put the temple on. Now, he stood by a, a rock that's kind of back underneath where they don't allow tourists to go. And that's kind of normal for my family. If the sign says, do not enter, it's like, hey, come on in. You know, I'm not sure why we do that, but we do. Anyway, he, he, he got his picture taken in front of this rock. Now, this rock is 47 feet long. 10 feet high and 10 feet wide. It's estimated to weigh 170 tons. And Herod had that rock put there. Remember, four feet tall. Did everything big. Everything big. But not only did he do stuff big, he was horribly cruel. He was horribly cruel and paranoid. Now, they always told me that it's really not paranoia if you know they're after you. You know? But But anyway... <laughs> He even thought that his son and his wife, Miriam, were plotting against him. So he had them all put to death. And then he began to miss Miriam. (laughs) So he built a big monument to her. Guy's kind of goofy. I don't know. They used to say it was safer to be Herod's pig than to be his son. You know, that's that's kind of crazy. But he was he was always you know paranoid. His sons were trying to take his throne. Move with me on a little bit here further in scripture after verse one. It says, Now in those days when Herod was king, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, and they said, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? Can't you imagine what would what this would do to that little insecure Herod? He's thinking to himself, I'm king of the Jews. Well, he's four feet. Yeah, I figured. Well. all right, he could have set it low. I don't know. Anyway, he's thinking, to himself, what, do you, what do you mean? Where is he that is born king of the Jews? Now, he was so threatened in his position that when these men came from the east uh, to inquire of the birth, he got really shook up. He got really shook up. They said, continuing on in, in, in verse 2, they said, for we have seen his star in the east, and we are come to worship him. You know, I think that star in the east has been a lot of things written on it. Let me give you just a couple things here for a second if I could. There's a lot of stuff written on it. In fact, you know, people have said there's a a conjunction of planets and uh, and they've come up with all kinds of different speculations as to what might have constituted the star of Bethlehem. And I say all that to say this. I don't know if you ever had a chance to go to the Griffith Park Observatory down in Los Angeles. It's just a really great place and it has a a planetarium in there. And and during December, one of the lectures that they provide is called the Star of Bethlehem. And what they do is they take all the lighting structure in that planetarium and they can realign it to any date in history. And they take it back to what they think is that time and it shows a beam of light by an alignment of planets that has not happened since. Now, if you haven't been there, you, you really ought to do it. Um, but it's a great trip. But anyway, um, they uh, they take you back through all the years and they show you the constellations. It's really cool. But just just exactly as uh, as that that's a matter of many men's speculations, and we don't know if it's valid or not. God didn't call me to speculate, so let's just move on a little bit. Uh, but I have to share this little story with you. You know. Uh, myself and my friends when we were young and we had bicycles we were kind of stupid and uh, we used to like to ride up the back side of griffith park hill to the observatory because if you came down the front side it was this serpentine road and on a bicycle you could probably get 30 35 miles an hour it just dawned on me as i was passing all those cars doing that young it dawned on me not too long ago that that was a two-way road I was going down and cars could have came up. <laughs> wasn't brilliant. I told you it was stupid. <laughs> Kids, don't try this at home. But yet still we survived. Huh. We still survived all those crazy things and we still survived. Of course, we had a different kind of drug problem. You know, we got drugged to church and drugged to Sunday school. Different kind of drug problem. I think it was a good drug problem. Anyway, okay, let me me go on. Verse 9, join me there if you will. I'm still in chapter 2. Verse 9, after they had heard the king, they went on their way and the star that had been seen in the east went ahead until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother and Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and incense and myrrh. And, And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. I want you to notice what it says there. It said it stood over where the young child was. It didn't say over the manger. It didn't stand over where a baby was, but it stood over where a young child was. You see, by the time they arrived, Joseph and Mary had moved out of the manger and into a house. Uh, And, excuse me, the wise men actually arrived, we believe, as late as a year, year and a half after the birth. A year to year and a half after the birth, which really messes up our Christmas themes for our musicals and stuff. Because, you know, it's a whole lot prettier picture when you've got the shepherds and the wise men all there for the baby in in the manger. And, uh, but, but anyway, that's not what it says. Now, said when the wise men finally arrived, I, I, I believe they found a young child who was actually walking around and possibly saying a few words. Their gifts. Let's look at their gifts for just a second. See, the gift of gold symbolized his kingly role a gift for a king. The frankincense was for his priestly. And the myrrh for his sacrificial death. Her myrrh was used in embalming. So the wise men were there. But they were already prepared for all three phases of his life. Okay, let's move to the second half of chapter 2. Beginning verse 13, it says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother and flee to Egypt and stay there until I bring you word. For Herod is going to seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt. And there he was until the death of Herod in order that it might be fulfilled. Notice once again, Matthew is showing us that there's a fulfillment of prophecy. It's a fulfillment. Over and over, he shows us these things. Moving on to verse 19. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. Isn't it funny? He went back up into the area. Where he originated from, and actually Galilee was where Mary had first received the word from Gabriel that she was going to be the mother of the Christ child. Isn't it funny how God does that? You think he's got a plan? Man, you guys are still too quiet. Reading on, he said, And they came, and they dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Every step of his life, every movement thus far, all following exactly what the prophets had laid out. And being directed in dreams. I find it fascinating. I, I like to read things about the brain and how it works and all the functions in the right and left hemisphere and, and all that other stuff and and, and what it teaches me is that we've got to be open to God's leading no matter what because you don't know what the spirit's going to bring to you that day you don't know if it will and sometimes it gets quiet and and that's what happened after chapter 2 if you go ahead and go to chapter 3 you're going to find out we're now going to enter a period that was literally 28 or 29 years later one chapter over a quarter of a century it's called the silent years of christ we jump from the return to Nazareth to the beginning of his public ministry. And now, there is one gospel recording that, 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 that talks about him at 12 years old. Remember, he was speaking in the temple. And, and at 12 years old, he even seemed to be a very unusual man. And you're, and you're going to cover that in another gospel. It's not in this one. But we're jumping now to John the Baptist. John the Baptist, who is preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Very well-dressed, dignified man. Reading chapter 3, verse 1. Read with me. It says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of to the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locust and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. I wish John would have really shared with us how he actually thought. You know, instead of beating around the bush. Man, obviously, John did not have a very high opinion of the scholars of that day. You know? So as John's laying into these Pharisees and scribes and calling them a generation of vipers, he said, let's see you bring forth some fruit to show that you've really repented. You see the other people were repenting and being baptized and turning away from their sin. And these fellows came along, too, and he said, I don't know, I'm not going to baptize you. Let's see some fruit. Verse 9, he says, and don't think to say within yourselves, well, we're the sons of Abraham. (laughs) That was their great boast. We're the sons of Abraham. They thought that that naturally constituted salvation. I want to share with you that that just as many people in the United States think that because they're an American, they're Christian. They say, well, we say the pledge of allegiance to the flag, and and, and that has under God in it, doesn't it? Don't you think I'm a, what do you think I am, a pagan or something? Let me share with you something, folks. I've been in a lot of different churches, and a lot of different places and a lot of different ministries. And I want to tell you, there's just a lot of people sitting in the church has been sitting in there all their life. That think they're saved because they were born to Christian parents. Or they think they're saved because they live in the United States. And that's not. Because you cannot be saved unless you have accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Unless you have, unless you believe that He is the Son of God who died on a tree for your sins. Not because you're born into a Christian family. Two years ago, I was at the state convention down in San Diego, and one of the speakers. And the theme presentation was giving a very powerful invitation. And at the end of it, five people at the convention went forward to accept Christ. Now, let me share with you. At the convention, everybody that is there is an elected messenger of a church in a Southern Baptist convention. Five people that were elected by their church to be a messenger were not Christian. Two of them were Pastors. You don't get to be a Christian because you're born in a family. You only get to be a Christian when you're reborn into the Christian family. All right. (laughs) Right after uh, they said, well, we're the sons of Abraham, he said, God can turn these stones into the sons of Abraham. God can do anything he wants. And we immediately move into the, what I call the baptism and commission of Jesus from there. You see, because in verse 13, we move on. It says, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove uh, and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Take notice. Jesus being baptized, Holy Spirit descends, voice of the Father. The Trinity was present at his baptism. Let's move on to chapter 4. Call this the testing. This is the testing. Chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And I did some research on that. And they say that that after about five days, you lose the sense of hunger when you go on a prolonged fast. And, And that you do not experience hunger again until you actually start to starve to death. And that usually happens somewhere uh, between the 35th and 40th day. Jesus was on the 40th day. They say when you start to get hungry again then, it's vitally important that you eat because you are now starving to death. And if you don't get some nutrition, you will soon die. Verse 3, the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. I want to tell you that Satan is not saying if in the indicative sense, if you are the son of God, he is saying, since you are the son of God, he knew it since you are the son of God. Why don't you use your divine powers to satisfy your own fleshly needs? You're God. You're hungry. Why don't you perform a miracle and satisfy your own desire? What did Jesus say? Verse four, Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. You see, the word of God is our strength and our power against temptation. I told this to a group earlier. The, uh, I used to be the youth pastor down at First Baptist Husperia. One morning I was out greeting folks out on the front steps, and, and this older gentleman came walking up, and he had this baseball cap on, and it said, I can resist anything but temptation. I thought, well, that's kind of funny, especially since he was a deacon. The only way, the only way to resist temptation, to be strong against temptation of the enemy is you have to get into the Word. You have to get into the Word. And you need to study the Word of God and you need to hide it in your heart. You know, it's rather interesting how uh, a lot of today's sayings are actually just reworded Scripture. Scripture. Because someone hid, some hid it in their heart and didn't realize that it had come out. One of the examples is you have all heard it: "What what goes around comes around." You've heard of that? "What goes around comes around." I believe the, script, the scriptural comparative to that is: "As you sow, so also shall you reap." Hide it in your heart. When you need it, it'll come out. You say, "I'm not good at memorization." Didn't ask you to memorize. It. Just get into the Word. Just read it. Just read it. Just read it. Okay. Verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple and said, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and they will not lift you up in their hands, excuse me, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Verse 7, Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So basically, Satan is suggesting to Jesus that he put himself in personal jeopardy to prove scriptures. He said, jump, prove it. He'll send his angels. But Jesus is wise enough to compare scripture to scripture. And he said, it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. We are not to put ourselves deliberately and purposefully in jeopardy to prove the scriptures. I want to tell you, I spent some time in the South. And one of the warnings that I was given is when you walk into certain Baptist churches, be sure that you look near the back wall to see if there's any boxes. Boxes on the back wall. And I'm thinking, boxes on the back wall? What are you talking about? Those are snake handling churches. You see, you proved your faith by handling a rattlesnake. That's stupid. <laughs> I want to tell you, there's two of those churches in Long Beach now, I've been told. Not really sure what the rattlesnakes are, but I don't know. Maybe it's their preacher. I'm not sure. Anyway, you don't put yourself in personal jeopardy to prove Scripture. Scripture proves Scripture. Scripture. I did walk into one of those churches once. So uh, uh, I was stationed down at uh, uh, Randolph Air Force Base. And, uh, I was actually preaching at uh, uh, a little church in uh, New Brunfels. It was an African-American church. I was their interim pastor. We had fun. Anyway, before I got there, I had gone into another church and visited it. And when I walked in, I saw a box sitting in the corner of the wall right there. I showed how repentance works. And I walked right back out. I ain't handling no snakes. I figure if the Lord wants me to handle a snake some, I'll just ask him to give it to Garen. He can handle it. He's he's more spiritual than me. (laughs) Moving on, (laughs) still in chapter 4, verse 12. Verse 12. You're probably always sitting there saying, I wish he'd get done. I'll get there, I promise. Verse 12. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake uh, in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. I think that the land, the language, if you will, of verses 12 through 16 there gives a fitting closure to the pre ministry phase of Jesus' life, but by drawing together uh, the, the themes that are connected there. Excuse me. Okay. Now, I'll get to my second point. Like I said a good message has, has three points and an illustration, right? Point number two God's saving presence in the midst of his people. Look with me, verse 17 and and following. This is the proclamation of the kingdom. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Did you hear that one before? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. I believe John the Baptist was preaching that, wasn't he? Now Jesus is taking up the same thing. Let me tell you, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's a lot of speculation out there about when Jesus is going to return. And and, and I know that Scripture says no man knows the day or the hour. But I'm going to give you one guarantee. Are you ready? We're closer today than we were yesterday. You can take that to the bank. We're closer today than we were yesterday. It could even be tonight. Or during the day. Who knows? Repent for the kingdom of heaven. Isn't here. What he's indicating there is that the kingdom of heaven being at hand and the Messiah was going to be revealed, the kingdom has the potential of being set up. And of course, we know they rejected the Messiah. Moving on to verse 18, calling of the disciples. Calling of the disciples. 18. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers. "'Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. "'They were casting a net into the lake, "'for they were fishermen. "'Come, follow me,' Jesus said, "'and I will make you fishers of men. "'At once they left their nets and followed him. "'Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, "'James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John.' They were in a boat with their father, Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them and immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. Now, obviously, this was not their first encounter with Jesus because you're going to find as you get through other Gospels, it'll explain that. But this is when Jesus came and called them to discipleship. Two sets of brothers called fishermen are confronted by Jesus' authoritative call while they're engaged in their occupational livelihood. They were called to ministry. I had a gentleman that came into my office a little while back, and, and he said, "I think I feel the call to full-time ministry. Full-time ministry." And of course, I did my best to discourage him because uh, I wouldn't ask anybody to come into full-time ministry. But then, after getting and talking with him and, and hearing his testimony and how it, how he is, I wanted to share with him that he's already in full-time ministry. You see, as as we as Christians go about our daily life, we are to always be representing Jesus. Everything we should do is as unto the Lord. Well, if that's the case, if everything we do and everywhere we go is as unto the Lord, we're in full-time ministry. No matter where you're at, no matter who you're talking to. Um, Last weekend, uh, my daughter and and her boyfriend uh, came up and and you know, we were working on the, on their car uh, a little bit. But as things would happen, we, I was coming back from meeting in Little Rock. And we happened to meet at the McDonald's in Mojave, you know, which was kind of weird because they were coming from L.A. and I'm from Little Rock. Maybe anyway, we met right there and, and then we were coming on up. Well, I, I left a few minutes before then and I'm heading on. And, and I don't drive extremely slow, but I don't, you know, 65, I drive 69, 70, something like that anyway. Well, he just kind of went on by. And while we were working on a car, a couple, one time he, he just kind of looked at me and, and he said, he said, you drive kind of slow. I said, really? I was I was exceeding the speed limit by a little bit. But I said, let me ask you a question. If you were me in, in a position that I'm in, and, and I get to share the gospel whenever there's opportunity, even standing like this. I said, if I was pulled over by a CHP, for breaking man's law and giving a ticket. If I happened to be preaching the next Sunday and that gentleman walked into the church, do you think he'd listen to what I had to say? No. Did I just get some of you that speed? Nah, 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 nah. You gotta be a good witness and stay as a good witness. Don't don't go don't go outside of that, okay? All right, let, let's let, let's move on. I, I apologize for digressing there. No, I don't. <laughs> Jesus called these gentlemen as a sense of, of urgency that superseded their livelihood and their personal relations. All right, verse 23. Jesus went through Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. See, these activities throughout verses 23 through 25 provide the reader with an overview of the scope and impact Act of Jesus' messianic activity. Restoring to health those who were sick. Liberating those of, of, of demon possession. It graphically illustrates God's powerful reign. Drawn into the person of Jesus Christ. His healing ministry is illustrative of Jesus' willingness to assume the role as Israel's compassionate shepherd king who truly cares for the people and delivers them from their afflictions. He's the Messiah. He's Christ. And Matthew wants us to know it. I don't know where you're at today. I don't know if you're walking with the Lord for 30 years or you've never accepted Him as Christ. But I want to tell you that you need to. There's a connection card in the, in the seat backs in front of you there. And if you're uh, just making, you're, you're here for your first time, please let us know that. But if you're just now making a decision for Christ of any type, whether it's rededication or not, please indicate on that card and let us know about that. Because we want to be able to help you grow to be what you need to be. I'm going to ask you if you'll stand with me as, as we're going to pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We just thank you for loving us in a way that only you can. We thank you for being there for us in all things. And how Matthew has explained to us who Jesus is and how he got to be what he is. Father, we thank you for these that are here today. And we pray for their hearts and their minds that they're truly seeking you. In your son's name, amen.